five weeks. Uh, this is going to be my last sermon arc uh, for the foreseeable future. I've been preaching for 15 years and I'm moving on to some other things. I will still preach um, uh, the first sermon of the year and I'll still do breakdowns and stuff like that. But this is going to be my last sermon arc, which seems fitting because it is the last sermon arc of the last five years also. Um, we have been talking for the last five years about, well, what have we been talking about? There you go. We've been talking about beauty for the last five years, and part of beauty is leadership. It's exhibiting qualities of uh, being a good discipler. It's exhibiting qualities of um, fatherhood and, and motherhood and even God. And so we've kind of come up to this point, and as we've got to this point of the last five years of doing things, of talking about all these different topics that are involved with what's beauty, and we come up to leadership, we've been hitting all these different points in regard to leadership, we come to the last point, which is what is the fruit of leadership? What does it mean to have good leadership based upon, uh, really based from a leader's perspective? What's a leader's perspective on what is good leadership? And so it's a really important uh, topic. But before we can really talk about what uh, the fruit of leadership is, to sort of culminate this sermon arc and the last five years, um, we need to talk about why we're talking about fruit, right? What does, what does it mean when we're talking about fruit? So when we talk about fruit, what's the fruit of leadership as it pertains to, to leadership, um, the most prevalent place that we can go to talk about that in scripture is going to be when we see it in the book of Galatians, right? Galatians chapter 5, we see the Apostle Paul speaking of the fruit of the Spirit. You might be picking up possibly the fan, I would think. Let me, let me turn it down for you. <clears throat> yeah, that's better. Okay. So, the most prevalent place that we're going to see that uh, in the scripture is in Galatians chapter 5, and we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. So, let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, and it's going to be verses 16 through 26. I'm going to go ahead and read it. You can catch up to me. But Galatians 5, uh, starting at verse 16. This is the Apostle Paul talking. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. And these two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. And when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Notice that. This kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there are no laws. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Now you'll notice he's talking about the fight between bad, uh, the bad seed and the good seed, right? And he says that this bad thing is, is upon us that needs to be exorcised. Our sinful desires are upon us that need to be exorcised because they keep us from being able to follow our good intentions. I want to be clear that this is a passage that's referring to Christians. Christians are freed under Christ to be able to follow their good intentions. However, that's not just it, right? A non-believer is not freed to follow his good intentions. He may have moral motions, meaning that because he's created in the image of God, he is going to always resonate with what's good, but he's not freed to make that good thing happen. With Christians, we at least have a shot. We at least have a shot of doing what's right based on our good intentions because we are now free to make the choice. And the choice can be that we sin. So sometimes we're going to sin and not be able to follow through. And that's who this passage is written to. However, the choice is ours once we have come uh, to saving knowledge in Christ. So you'll see that there are two basic fruits that are present here. One is from God and one is not. And each fruit here is produced by two different sources, right? One is from God, one is not. The fruit of the Spirit is the product of a state of being in which we let the Holy Spirit control us. In other words, in other words it is the Holy Spirit's product. It's His seed, right? It's His fruit. And remember, we've harped on this before, but I'll point it out again. These are not fruits of the Spirit, meaning that they're separate items. They are one fruit. One fruit with multiple different aspects, like that strawberry is red and lush and juicy and so on and so forth. In that way, the fruit of the Spirit is loving and joyful and peaceful and patient, right? It's not separate things. It's one fruit. The fruit of the flesh is, believe it or not, the same thing. The fruit of the flesh is not multiple actions. It's the same action. That's why sin is sin, right? A murderous heart is an envious heart. A heart that steals is an envious heart. All of these different things, a, a, a heart that has sexual immorality seated in it is an envious heart. All of these things are rebellious against God. It's one fruit, but it has a spectrum of things that, that give it its qualities. So you have two types of fruit here, the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh. We can see here that the fruit is Paul's metaphor for speaking about the product of something. It's the product of something's true nature. So we're going to talk a little bit about fruit. When we look at the fruit of something, we can clearly define what type of plant it is. Right? We don't look at a seed and say, that's, well, unless we're awesome. We don't look at a seed and say, that's a watermelon. Right? Normally, we look at the watermelon, and then we can understand what made it. That's how that works. Um, <clears throat> some seeds may look similar. 
I spent a long time, relatively, looking up seeds for this sermon, <laughs> trying, to, trying to understand this. So some, some seeds may look similar. Um, most, if not all, seeds look pretty different in their seed phase than the plants that they produce, though, right? Like a seed doesn't generally look like, an apple seed doesn't look like an apple. <clears throat> so the best way to get the plant that you want without being surprised by the plant that you get is going to require you to draw connections to a plant seed and the fruit together as opposed to separate from each other. you got to understand how they're connected to each other. You can't look at the mature version of the plant alone to understand what the seed is, and you can't look at the seed to understand what the plant is. You have to see it as, as a ladder, right? This becomes this, as opposed to these things are separate from each other. You have to understand the fruit and its seed. You have to understand what seed was planted, and then you have to trace the connection. And that's logical. That's something that's just logical. To get a watermelon, you plant watermelon seeds, right? But you don't get those seeds from themselves. You get them from a mature watermelon. So it's all connected to each other. And that's logic. And it would seem obvious, but the idea actually isn't very obvious these days. We have a hard time, just take a look at the statistics in regard to education, we have a hard time understanding how to get from point A to B. Increasingly so. There's a hard time doing what we call sequencing, getting from point A to B and understanding the steps between. In this day and age, there's a continually diminishing philosophy um, that says that things are intrinsically linked to each other. We generally don't understand anymore where anything actually comes from, right? You have people who don't understand how their food got to them. It just happened in a grocery store. Now, of course, that is, that's fine, right? That's fine in this day and age because there's a specific philosophy about how the world came to be. Time plus chance. Time plus chance creates the world. Everybody has an idea that there's no actual logic behind it. So when things appear, then those things are just there. And they're there to be consumed. So how does it matter how we got one thing from another? Problem is, is that that doesn't actually work in God, God's kingdom. So Paul notes that certain fruits, they bloom out of bad seeds, and that that type of fruit doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to be really careful to make this point. What Paul is noting in, in uh, chapter 5 there is that there's an inheritance that's coming, and there's only one type of fruit that's going to inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you can claim you're a Christian, but being a Christian doesn't just mean having a moniker or a title attached to it. It has certain aspects to it, meaning that you are God's children. And being his children means that you get the blessings of being his children. And there are certain, there's a certain fruit that comes from being his children, and this is what that looks like. And if you are producing these other things, sexual immorality and so on and so forth, right? All these impure things, then what does that say about the fruit that you are? Or how about this? What does that say about the seed that was planted? So we have to understand here that God doesn't tolerate just anything in his garden. And we need to be looking at the fruit that we are producing in order to understand what seed is there. God doesn't tolerate that. 
And, and he words it this way because there are certain seeds that are born in a lust of the flesh, right? They're, they're, uh, they're fun. They're tasty. They are passionate. But it's kind of like blackberries. Blackberries are an invasive species, right? They come in and they corrupt everything and they take it over and they have to be weeded out. They're invasive and chaotic. They destroy the environment that they're grown upon. And God doesn't tolerate that sort of thing. Our God is a God of order. So, all this is to say that the fruit and the seed, when we're looking at it, are equally important to us. They're equally important to the planting of anything that you want to grow. So when you're looking at any product, you must look at the fruit and the seed. And as a gardener, you have to consider the whole of what you do, both the actions and the outcomes. So when we talk about the fruit of Christian leadership, again, what are we referring to? What we're really talking about is the product produced by the seed of being led in a Christ-like way. The actions and the outcomes. In most cases of the discussion of fruit, we would speak about the fruit's qualities when it's matured, right? <clears throat> and as was the example in the case of the fruit of the Spirit, those things like love and patience and kindness, those are references to a fully matured fruit of Spirit-filled Christianity. And certainly, we um, <clears throat> can have that conversation, and we're going to have that conversation, and we're going to talk about the qualitative nature, qualitative nature of the fruit of Christian leadership and what it produces. Um, you know, a community that's dedicated to disciples whose connection is beyond the finite nature of space and time and <clears throat> lives in the blessing of being cleansed by the work of Christ. We're going to talk about that. Not today. Um, none of that is possible, of course, without first reminding ourselves about how that fruit is grown. And that's going to be the most important thing as we talk about the fruit of leadership. So, did you know that there's a science um, behind planting seeds? There's a lot to read about. Um, <clears throat> the long and short of it is that the fruit of a seed produced is rarely just thrown into the ground. Now, sometimes uh, that works, and there's when, let me rephrase that. When, when some, there's a whole ecosystem, right? When man gets involved, when man decides to farm it, there's a whole science that goes into it. God has his way that he's built into the ecosystem. You know, a bird eats the fruit and poops it out and so on and so forth, right? The worms till the ground, all of this, right? But when man gets involved and man decides to farm it to produce his own sort of order to it, um, there's a lot that actually can go into it. <clears throat> he rarely just throws it to the ground. There's a lot of factors to creating an environment that can sustain the life of a plant as it changes into the plant that it's becoming. There's a lot of factors. And namely, the two that we're going to talk about today are the um, environment that it's thrust into, first of all. So is the ground suitable for growing that plant? Is it fertile? Is it, or is it devoid of nutrients? Is it soft? Or is it rock hard, for instance? Are there foreign elements like rocks, uh, predators, other things like other like invasive species, all sorts of things that could, uh, you know, take it out as it grows? Is the ground tilled or is it, you know, 
<clears throat> is it tilled and ready? Is there enough uh, rain? Is there enough sun? So on and so forth. So I would sort of define that as uh, that first category as where the seed is growing. What is the environment that the seed is growing into? But then there's also going to be, and here's the one that um, I didn't know too much about. I mean, I think I'd heard it before, but here's the one that I thought was interesting. There's also the condition of the seed. A seed, uh, believe it or not, can contain disease on it. It can contain plagues on its skin. And <clears throat> though, the, though the structure on the inside is fine, the outside of the seed has this disease, right? And as the seed grows uh, into a plant and it sheds its skin, where do you think that disease goes? To the plant. So a disease can be on the skin of a seed and it, it can contain plagues on it. And as the plant grows from its shell, the seed transfers these diseases to their fruit. And that's why farmers will wash their seeds. They'll even go so far as to scrub the outsides of their seeds. Um, to keep that from happening. Now, we as people are these seeds, right? We're the seeds, and we need to be washed. And we also need that first point, what? A safe place to grow, right? We need to be washed, and we need a safe place to grow in order for us to grow. And once these two things are done, there's still something else you have to do. What do you think that is? It's a simple one. It's a basic step. Of course, there's going to be other things that you got to do, but there's a basic step, and it goes like this. You got to plant it. Which might be kind of scary, right? Because you just made this bright and shiny new seed, right? So now you have to plant it. So Jesus gave an illustration once, and it's uh, in John chapter 12. <clears throat> and he says this around verse 23 of John chapter 12. He says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And those who love their life in this world will lose it, and those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. But now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But that's the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. So the point that Jesus was making is that in order for the wheat to grow into a crop of wheat, it had to do what? Die. In order for the wheat to grow, the single kernel of wheat to grow into a crop of wheat, it had to die. It had to be cast away and buried and then nurtured by the cycles of life, watered by the rain, fed by the sun. And that's the only way to produce a harvest. And by the way, I learned something new I'm going to teach you. Uh, you know the term broadcast? That comes from planting. It's, you, put, you know, put your seeds in your hand and you broadcast them out there and see what, what comes up. That's where the term broadcast comes from. It's like you're putting it out there for anybody to find and receive. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, it has to be uh, watered and nurtured by the cycles of life, rain, all of that stuff, right? So herein lies the twist. 
Herein lies the twist of the Christian message. The message that's essentially repeating like a beacon throughout the narrative of the gospel. Whether in the work of Christ on the cross or the sacrament of communion, and yes, this of course applies to the metaphor of baptism as well. Let's uh, look at Colossians 2, verses, well, verse 12. Colossians 2, verse 12. We're buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's take a look at Romans 6, 1 through 11. Well then... <clears throat> this is one of my favorite passages. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. And since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives, and we are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin and since we died with Christ, we know we also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And that is why the disciples, that's why the disciples were told to add baptism to their ethic of discipleship in the Great Commission. Haven't you always thought it's weird? It's kind of weird, right? Go out and make disciples baptizing them. Like, it's one thing to go out and make disciples, right? Go out and find people to teach, live your life with, build a community, right? But then there's this other thing you throw in there, baptism. What is that? Well, this is what that is. Because baptism means something. It's an ethic. It's an ethic of uh, discipleship. Right. Um, it's the burying of the seed. Baptism is the burying of the seed. When we're saved, God has taken our souls and washed them. Right? He's taken our souls and washed them, and he's removed the parasites and the plagues that have attached themselves to our skin and made us able to be planted. And so, in baptism, we then put ourselves into the ground. We plant those seeds and allow a godly fruit to come forth. And that's a natural example that Paul is giving of a truly and increasingly strange concept in this day. The idea of baptism. 
And I don't mean now the idea of just baptizing in water, although that's strange to people too. I mean the idea of being dead to sin. It's a truly and increasingly strange concept in this day and age. When we think of leadership, which is what this discussion is, when we think of leadership in this day and age, it doesn't seem to fit with the message that we're being inundated with about who to take advice from and who to look up to. Where are the messages of God? Whereas the message of God is that our leaders should lead us into discipleship. Discipleship specifically that does what? Buries itself. So whereas the message of God is that discipleship, leadership, should teach us how to bury ourselves, the spirit of the age tells us to follow ourselves into decadence and self-preservation. It tells us that we should grow the self. Just for the sheer comfort of it. That we should embellish the self. That we should satisfy the self. And that the self is the most important standard by which things should be judged. And that includes, when I say by which things should be judged, that includes even God himself. That we should judge God by our standards. If you ever hear somebody start with the phrase, how could a good God, or how could a loving God, what they're really asking is, based on me, how could a good God or a loving God? So I have a clip to show you. Um, this one, hopefully, is the right one. It's from the recent VMAs. Is this, do you have that one for me? It's the one that starts at a minute 44. Yeah, I have a clip to show you from the VMAs. Do you guys know what the VMAs are? The Video Music Awards. John's hip. <laughs> it's MTV. 313. It's from Taylor Swift. Does that help? Uh, if it's out of order, I'll put it back in order. Don't worry. Oh, that's nice and dark. Okay. There we go. Yep, that's. So this is Taylor Swift, guys.
So that was Taylor Swift. She's accepting an award for a video recently posted that um, even people in the, here in the church like, which really bothers me, for the record. Um, and it's called You Need to Calm Down. She was accepting that award, if you notice, with the cast that she talked about of drag queens and counterculture people, LGBTQIA plus members. And it was for best music video. There's a couple things that she said in that. She makes a point about the video. She talks about um, that her video, and she, she notes that it's important because that award is voted on by the public. Okay? So the VMAs, those awards are given by the public. They're not given by a panel like the Oscars, but they're given by the public. So that means if it was voted on, that means a lot of people resonated with it. And then she made a point about the petition that goes at the end of the video talking about marriage equality and how it is that they're, they're trying to get the White House to uh, take a look at this bill to make it, you know, for marriage equality, essentially, for the, uh, for the counterculture movement, right? And she points out that there's five times the necessary signatures to get the White House to take a look at it, and then she points at her watch and, you know, like, we're waiting. Um, <clears throat> and she says something at the end of the video with her drag queens and with her LGBTQIA plus friends, and she points out that the people that are with her on the stage have authentic lives. That they have authentic lives and that they are leading examples. And there's that statement, right? There's a statement that's being made there. An example of what is the question? What are they leading the example in? That's a question. They're leading examples of what? What? They're leading examples of self. Right? So I have another clip. It's by the artist Lizzo. Can you throw that up there? This one I found funny. If you pay attention to the background, you'll see a pretty interesting, um, <laughs> you'll see something pretty interesting. She's in the middle of a song she's performing. And uh, it's, it's something else. That's really hard for you to understand. Um, <clears throat> but the, the song is talking about how, how she feels. She breaks down in the middle of her song. I think the, the song is called Good as Hell. And she breaks down in the middle of her song to talk about how she's tired of people making her feel bad for the way that she feels. And however she feels is good as hell. Completely missing the irony, of course. 
And as an Easter egg, if you checked out the backdrop, you will notice that there is a large butt in the background that bounces up and down. And in the foreground. So <clears throat> what does Romans remind us? Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and on. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, and they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like, Then, as a result their minds became dark and confused, and claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And so God abandoned them to whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. And men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of their sin, they suffered with, inse with inside themselves the penalty that they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. They know that God's justice requires that those who do those things deserve to die, and yet they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them also. How many of you know the last album that Taylor Swift put out? I have it on vinyl. It's called Reputation. And she has a couple songs on there that are really interesting. And they're really well produced, for the record. I love that album in terms of its production. But she talks specifically about a lot of these actions. And she talks about jokingly about these things. She talks about how she is not going to forgive, for instance. She talks about how if she did something wrong, it's okay, and she would do it again. And now, is it really that hard for us to draw a conclusion as to why she's decided to lend her voice now to this particular movement? Worse yet, they encourage others to do these things also. My friends, when you partake of this fruit, there's a seed attached to it. We have to be careful about what we allow in. 
They encourage others to do that also. How does she end that video, by the way? Anybody seen it? Come on, the youngins must have seen it. The video that she got an award for? Brittany, do you know? How does she end the video? Mm-hmm. You need to calm down. It ends with what? It ends with a PSA. Go vote for this. And when she gave the acceptance award, how did she, uh, what did she say in it? She said, guess what? It's great that you like this, but there's still something that you need to do. Worse yet, they encourage others to do this also. These people don't even know what they're doing. They don't understand. The heart isn't something to be followed. A lot of people say we should follow our heart. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that following your heart is bad because the heart is deceitful. It's wicked. It's good as hell. The heart should not be followed and it shouldn't be lifted up. And godly leadership should always be wary of the heart. Anybody who comes to me and says, my heart told me to do that, is the person who is about to say to me, and I don't care what scripture says. I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. And in that two decades, those two almost always follow each other. Almost always. Instead, a godly leader will remember not to affirm the human heart, but instead to rebuke it. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul says this in Ephesians 4. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life of, that God gives them because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame with their asses on the stage. He didn't say that. I added it. They live for lustful pleasures and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. And since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. The heart is deceitful above all things. And those believers who have been cleansed, that seed that's in them, has been washed off. 
Just because it's there doesn't mean they'll always make the right decision. I want to remind you that it was a free, pure man who brought sin into this world. The next step is the important step. To bury it. And let it grow into what God wants it to be. Not to exalt it. Not to lift it up. Whereas the spirit of the age tells us to love ourselves above all things, the scripture says, do not trust yourself. Bury it to be born again. And yet, some of you will say in your hearts, as we all do, it sounds good on paper and it makes sense, but is that really what God wants? And is that really fair? And didn't God create everybody good? And if God really loved me, then he would love me as the person that he created me to be. And that is the prime conflict of our generation and the exploit of leaders everywhere. Beckett Cook, a newly identifying Christian who used to use his sexuality as his identity, Though still struggles, he still struggles with same-sex attraction, he spoke of this question of self and fairness to it. And I have another video for you to watch. It's a video day, guys. I like this guy. I've been listening to him. He kind of has like a Steve Jobs thing going on. You'll see.
<clears throat> One who identifies with Christ accepts his death and he finds life. That's what the scriptures say. One who identifies with himself denies the identity of Christ in his life. And he fails to put on the new man and he hangs on to the old, whether or not they acknowledge Jesus with their lips or not. And they find death because they have chosen to hang their identity on the life of a dead man walking. And at judgment, he will receive the payment that he is due. I liked that clip in particular because that's a man who struggles with same-sex attraction. That's a man who's part of the culture that says that because this is what I struggle with, this is who I am. Some may, you know, want to ask the question of, are you born gay, for instance? Didn't God create you that way? How could God be wrong to do these things? But guys, we're all born sinners. What does that have to do with the new life? What does it have to do with the new man? This is a new life. I'm born again. That's my old man. Who cares if you're born gay or if you're not born gay? It doesn't matter. Death is always looming for humans. Either we die willingly in Christ and become new as he intended, or we die unwillingly in our old selves. And for Christian leaders, there should be as much a taste of death in our leadership as there should be the sweetness of victory over it. And that's where we get into the rub. Because that's not popular. That doesn't get people in the door. How does that look in our leadership, in our discipleship? Well, it should look first like a fruit, a first fruit of sacrifice. Remember, Christ is called the first fruit, right? What does it mean by first fruit? It means that you take a sampling of the harvest, and based upon the sampling, you know that everything is, is, is ready to be harvested. That's what the first fruit was. Christ is the first fruit. So God accepts that the harvest is ready to be brought into the storehouse. He doesn't just check everything. He checks Christ. And so Christ extends his grace to us. In the same vein, Christian leaders are to be the first fruit. Just as, for instance, fathers are to be the first fruit of their family. So we're to be the first fruit of sacrifice. Jesus presented himself at the altar first as those who can be trusted to be followed because we are imitators of Christ. Remember the words of Paul. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. As those who claim that we can be trusted as Christian leaders, we must also be the first to the altar in the way that Jesus was the first to the altar. 
the first to lay our lives down before the hand of judgment. We have to be first to set ourselves apart from the spirit of the age, first to fall before the crowds that cry for blood at our descent of it. It is not an easy thing to be holy. And I don't mean holy like there's a halo floating above my head. I mean holy when I stand in a crowd who's clapping and going nuts for Taylor Swift at the VMAs and not being okay with that. Being set apart. That's what I mean. Set apart because I'm a new man, a new creature in Christ. To be the voice of dissent. To be the watcher on the wall that says that the people who are coming in are not good to let in. We have to be the first to keep the vigil. We have to be the first to stay sober and on watch for that enemy at our gates. We have to be the first to starve when there's not enough to nourish everyone. We have to be the first to go desolate when there isn't shelter. We have to be the first to forgive when the ones that we loved would drive nails into our hands and mock us and spit on us and joke about who we are before God. We can't be those who wait and we have to be those who listen. We can't be those who are wrathful, though we have to love God's justice. That's what I mean by the first fruit of a godly leader. At its core, the fruit of a godly leader is going to produce a community of dedicated disciples whose connection is beyond the finite nature of space and time and who live in the blessings of being cleansed by the work of Christ. We need to add to it that those who farm this fruit do so with a price. They have to die in order to keep it alive. Christianity sown from the work of those who didn't die to yield its crop produce a dead harvest. Infected and rotting and a plague to everything that it touches. That type of Christianity, that type of leadership, lacks the symmetry of God's will, his wrath, and his mercy. Become exchanged for a religion that causes the wars of impotent and meaningless faith in the past. We have been at times either and or, but today we have to be both. We need Christian leaders to march us into our deaths. I know that doesn't sound pleasant, but it's the truth. Don't forget that the words of Christ are, pick up your cross and follow me. Where do you think he was going? It wasn't to a picnic. If you're a Christian leader, you should be 
following him. And if you're a person who's being led by that Christian leader, where do you think you're going? We don't need Christians who teach that Jesus wants to love us as these perfect beings that we just don't realize that we are. We need teachers who will teach the narrow way instead of the wide way. Teachers that will call what they have learned about God something that they should not be ashamed of instead of something that they just didn't really fully understand before, and so now they can't really get behind what they taught before. We need parents who will withhold the common sense <clears throat> boundaries of the world away from their children. Who would rather... Those, we don't need parents who would rather allow their children to be make-believe and to live in fantasy worlds where they can be anything that they want to be at any time, regardless of the adult consequences that their children are going to face. And again, that sounds crazy until you consider that we are literally talking about parents who are letting children children that they wouldn't even let drive or drink make choices that are going to mutilate their bodies. We need husbands who will not only work outside the home, but come before their family after their job and continue to be present and continue to participate and guide and correct and love instead of the absentee fathers that are out there. We need wives and mothers who will allow consequences to come to bear and who will teach their children what happens in life, not by saving them from it. We need wives who will help their husbands in their decision-making, not by removing their choices from them. We need pastors who are bold enough to view their calling as one from a holy God, even if a church can't pay them. We need pastors who don't change their words to accommodate the feeling of men, but rather to accommodate the leading of the Holy Spirit. Pastors who let the Scripture speak despite their own frailties. We need Christians who are willing to stand on God amidst a sea of hatred for God. We need each other to be willing to walk into death, to bury that seed. What good does it do you if you have these shiny seeds? But you don't bury them so they can grow. We need people to speak plainly about his word in their everyday lives. People who are willing to lose popularity in order to gain truth. And the question is, is that you? When someone around you speaks of being disrespectful to their husband as a joke or not, 
Do you correct it? When someone around you speaks of love winning to justify their ungodly lifestyle, do you correct it? When a child is disrespectful to their parents, when a parent is bullying their child, when a teacher is indoctrinating your children at their public godless schools, when your child listens to music that desensitizes them, do you hold back your thoughts? And if so, is the reason that you hold back your thoughts because you're afraid to speak them? Because you have this shiny seed and you've worked so hard to get it clean. It has no viruses on it anymore. It has no plague on it anymore. And you just want to keep it nice and shiny forever. Do you hide behind such profound air of the age wisdoms as, I'm not trying to change anyone here? Or, a loving God would accept this. Do you actually believe those things? Or is it possible that you're really just being a coward? Is it possible that you actually do understand that when you judge people, in the way that you judge people, you too will be judged? And so because of that, you're afraid of being judged. Because you don't really understand that we shouldn't fear being judged. Because we have Christ. Are you afraid to die? And understand here what I'm saying. Yeah, on the spectrum of death, we're talking about a physical death. But that spectrum is wide and varied. And it can mean something as simple as being uncomfortable. But it can also mean something far-reaching. Losing your family, losing your friends, losing your career. Are you afraid of that? Would you rather have the comforting lifestyle? Would you rather live for self? Would you rather be good as hell? Or should I rephrase it, just good as hell? You are called to die. That is the first fruit. The first fruit of godly leadership is death. Yeah, it's death that produces. It's not infinite death. It's not a death that ends. It's a death that begins. But it is death. It's death without a sting. You are called to die. As a leader, you must be first in the game. And therefore, you have to be first into the grave. The grave of self. And when you die, that is when the harvest begins. That's when the single kernel of wheat becomes a harvest of wheat.
you've all met a bunch of different people who've claimed to be leaders, right? I myself have met a lot of self-proclaimed leaders in my day, men who claim to be following God, and they take on mantles to bolster their own importance, from Bible study leaders to self-proclaimed kings. And as they huff and puff about their work in God's kingdom and how God has given them a great gift to be used for his people, they don't have any harvest. They're Christian teachers whose students couldn't pass an internet quiz on the Bible. They're Christian pastors who don't know their congregation because their churches turn over weekly. They're Christian parents whose children are just waiting to graduate and get away from them and their church as soon as possible. They're Christian marriages who've padded their sacred vows with fine print prenuptial agreements. They're Christian churches whose members are made up of likes and follows and not actual people. So where's the harvest from these so-called Christian leaders? Consider that if it's not there, perhaps it's because we are not spreading the seed that was cleansed and is now to be planted. Ourselves. The seed that was cleansed. Ourselves. Put into the ground, dead. Washed by the blood of Christ and ready to be planted into baptism and raised into harvest because we're afraid to die, because we're afraid to be buried. But this is where the fruit of Christian leadership always begins. We cannot have a conversation about the fruit of Christian leadership, the community of faith that it brings, the network that it can bring, the righteous living that it can bring. We can't talk about the fruit of that unless we're willing to talk about that nasty elephant in the room, that in order for you to be a Christian leader, you have to die. The harvest begins at the burial of the workers. That's how God rolls. He likes those paradoxes. Have you died? Or are you still holding on to self? If you're having a problem in your leadership position, whether it's teaching, whether it's pastoring, whether it's being a mother, being a father, being an employer, have you considered that maybe you have an area where you aren't allowing God to bury you? So my questions are simple. Number one, where is this happening in your life? I'll tell you something about me. As you all know very well, I'm not perfect. And though my imperfections, um, I'm talking about real imperfections, not ones that, you know, 
we all have our, our little nuances that some people would consider imperfections but aren't before God, you know? But I'm talking about real moral imperfections. Though my moral imperfections are largely unseen by you, they're very seen by me and incredibly seen by God. And I bury that on the daily. And you know what? It pops up every day. And it has to be taken and reburied. Are you guys going through that process? How many of you are doing that? Are you burying the things about yourself that need to grow? Or are you preserving it because, hey, at this point in time, it's clean? I didn't even talk about the parable of the talents. So my first question was that one. My first question was that one about, I, I don't know if I completed it. Did I complete it? Colin? Okay. So my first question was that one about, basically, where is this happening in your life? Is this something that you're doing where you're taking a look at your life and you're saying, in all of these areas... Is there something that I am not actually planting? Where I've allowed it to be cleaned by God and I feel good about that. Me and God are good. He's not going to blame me for it anymore. But I'm not investing it. So that's my first question. My second question is, do I have a harvest? Do I have a harvest? Is that harvest one where I can see the effect of it? Or is it one that's rotten? Where it grew and the infection that was attached to it and the ground that I put it on quenched it and hurt it and it needs to be cleaned still and again and reseeded and reburied and replanted. And then my last question is just about leadership. Have you considered that in order for those people in your life, in this church, and otherwise, but I'm really talking specifically about Christian leadership, although, newsflash, it's true outside the church too. Have you considered that those people in your life who are leaders carry an incredible burden where they have to be the first to put themselves to death? And do you treat those people appropriately? That's it. Go discuss. <laughs>